1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
2: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
3: I could stay here forever.
2: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered
0: today. Alex Finley was a CIA officer serving in Europe and Africa. Before joining the CIA, she was a journalist covering the Department of Energy, the Pentagon, and Capitol Hill. Alex currently works as a professor and writer focusing on national security, disinformation, and covert influence. Online, she's known as the Yacht Watcher, as she tracks boats owned by sanctioned Russian oligarchs around the world. She joins me today to talk about her career, her yacht watching, as well as her latest satirical novel about the CIA, Victor in Trouble. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence
2: Matters.
0: Alex, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's uh, great to have you on the show.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I think we're going to talk about some serious stuff, but I think we're also going to have some fun. Alex, you're the author of a new satirical novel, Victor in Trouble. The book follows CYA case officer Victor Caro on his adventures during his final tour in Rome. You managed to make the book both hilarious and insightful at the same time. It was a joy to read, so congratulations. Thank you. Before we get into the book, I want to ask you a couple of questions about how you kind of got to the book and how you got to this point in your career. Before you joined CIA's Director of Operations, you worked as a journalist, and I'm wondering— what drew you to being a journalist, and then what drew you to CIA?
3: So I had always been interested in international relations, but I had also always been a very strong writer. And so I really, when I left graduate school, my idea was to sort of combine the two. And I started uh, working at local papers and and then I actually was at uh, in Washington covering Capitol Hill for a while. And very quickly, I actually became a little disillusioned, I guess you could say, with Capitol Hill and Congress. I was there as a reporter when the uh, Bill Clinton scandal with his intern um, mm. broke. And yeah, I, I started realizing, OK, maybe you know, this isn't the right place for me. And I was still leaning more towards sort of national security type of stuff. And then the opportunity just arose to join the agency. I, I actually wasn't seeking it out. A friend of mine uh, worked there, and he came to me, and he recruited me and asked me to come in. And, and that's it. That, I, I really need a sexier story for how I joined the agency, but <laughs> you that's it.
0: You do. You do. Strong writer and operations officers, don't usually go together. I know there's a whole bunch of people who are going to throw things at me for saying that, but that's a little unusual. So you're pretty special. So you worked at CIA from 2003 to 2009. Why did you decide to leave?
3: So, well, first of all, I was not a case officer; I was a reports officer. Okay, that's got where it. The, the writing and editing <laughs> the writing skills. comes in.
0: Okay, got it.
3: <laughs> I had to fix all of those sentences from the case officers. <laughs> uh, I left for a number of different reasons. Some of them personal, some of them professional. But I, I think overall, what I found was just it it was not quite the right fit for me. I was very creative, you know, I had a creative background and I wanted to be more creative. And while operations can be creative, the bureaucracy of the agency, I found a little bit stifling. And that actually is the theme of my first book, Victor in the Rubble. And part of that also grew out of my frustration with uh, the war on terror. So, you know, a number of people, of course, have written about their experiences in that I was extremely low level, like you said, I joined in 2003. So I was a very low level sort of cog in the wheel for all of this. But I did have a, a front row seat to uh, what was happening. And there was a lot of absurdity that I was seeing both in the bureaucracy and with some of the policies. And it, it was it was frustrating to me, that's all. and And I didn't really see up where i wanted to go you know when i looked in the agency and looked at what what there was for me the reports officer cadre just wasn't quite interesting enough for me growing wise and i was not cut out to be a a case officer i i know that about myself so me too me too too. (laughs) so that's it i i decided to to leave and to pursue uh, other adventures
0: so alex uh not many former cia officers write books after they leave the agency. And then among those who do write books, even fewer write satire. Can you tell us, you know, how you got into writing satire? Is it something that was an interest of yours early in life? You know, did you read and write satire in high school or college? Or do you develop that interest later?
3: I think I had always had that interest. A lot of what I wrote, I mean, first of all, I, I was always a writer. I, I always wrote. Um, and so even through college uh, and graduate school, when I was writing things, I did tend to write more humor related. I liked to take sort of serious issues and find what was absurd and funny in it and, and then kind of make fun of it. Um, and, and I find that satire can really highlight some interesting realities that we can't necessarily get to if we're trying to be very serious or or we see them in a different light if we sort of highlight them in a funny way I also just think it makes things more entertaining I think people like to interact uh, with things that are funny because it, it can bring joy even while it's uh, educating you so satire had always sort of been something that was a part of my writing and um, so yeah, when I when I left the agency in two thousand nine, I did already have this book in mind, and um, you know the, the like I said, the first book, Victor in the Rubble, is uh, you know is about the war on terror, and uh, you know that's a very serious subject, obviously, and I I myself had trauma from uh, what I had experienced, and I knew plenty of other people around me who had sort of suffered because of this war. And uh, I knew that I needed to write about it, you know, but then, you know, there are different ways that we, we manage how we, how we deal with that. And for me, it it was through satire.
0: Did you consider yourself or do you consider yourself a funny person? Um, You know, can you make people laugh? Is that something you always had as a kid and growing up?
3: No, no, I actually uh, was an introvert. Um, I never thought I was all that funny. But I did always find writing was a great way to express myself. I, I don't know if I find it less risky in some ways, even though in, in many ways, it's more risky, right? Because you're opening yourself up to anybody, anybody could read it. It's not just to the people who are right around you. But no, for some reason, I think I feel safer being funny when I write.
0: You know, street trade craft is a big deal to CIA officers. Is there a is there a tradecraft to writing satire, to writing humor? Is there, a, is there a kind of an outline to follow to do that, or does it
3: just flow out of you? I would say in many ways, like tradecraft, you, you want to be creative and not censor yourself. So when it comes time to actually execute the operation or the writing, you know, you need to have thought out all of your details. But you need to allow yourself first in the brainstorming session to go wherever it is you're going to go. And you may go down hundreds of wrong paths uh, before you find the way that that really works. So I, uh, I've i gone through, you know, drafts and drafts of, of things where I know there's a joke in there somewhere, but I can't quite get it. Um, and you just, you know, you just have to keep working at it a, a gazillion times. But I think the best sort of lesson that I've learned over the past number of years of writing is just don't censor yourself. Get everything out on the page and and then you can fix it and, and make it better.
0: So Alex, a couple more questions before we get to your books. There's a lot of humor at CIA. Lots of jokes being told, lots of laughing as people are going through their work every day. And I'm just wondering, based on your experiences, is the agency in any way unique in that regard? You know, is there more humor at the agency than there was at other places you've worked or you've been? What's your sense of that?
3: I agree with you. I think there was a lot of humor at the agency. And I think actually I would attribute that to the need for release, right? We work, you know, it's a high-stress environment. People have enormous responsibility, even very early on in their careers. The consequences of the decisions that they're making can be big and grave. And so to deal, I think, to deal with that, we, you know, we get sort of a dark humor and, uh, and we find all kinds of things to make fun of or to, to make jokes about. I also think um, one of the things that I noticed, uh, and I still notice today when, when I get together with former agency people or friends who are still there. You know, we talk different once we're all together because we don't have to cover up a lot of the things that we have to cover up in our real lives. There are still a number of things that we can't talk about, right, in our in our sort of daily lives. And when we're all together, it's a safe environment where we can share all of that. And uh, so I think that that's the kind of environment that I always sort of found in the agency. Also, you're, you're going through... It may not be trauma, but it may be you're you're going through a very strange thing. You know, I I, I was based in West Africa, on my first overseas tour, and it was it was a strange place. It was uh, very different than anything that I had done or where any place I had lived, and uh, you know, and I was with other people who were experiencing all of that sort of strangeness and and the culture shock and and adjusting to it. So you're also with other people who understand. All sort of the strange things that you're going through too, and so it's you, you have all that in common and it's shared and so I think it's a that's what makes it sort of this environment where we all have this very similar sense of humor.
0: It also seems to me that the agency provides lots of material for satire, right? everything from polygraphs and you know financial disclosure forms when the vast majority of people don't have any money, right. To burn bags and not enough parking, and there's lots of material there. Is that your sense too?
3: Absolutely, and in fact, the first book, uh, Victor and the rebel is is a lot about that. There's a lot of poking fun at the bureaucracy, a lot of poking fun at sort of the day to day job of it, and and one of the other things I think where there's a great sense of humor. Among agency people is that we, we recognize that we are not James Bond or Jason Bourne. And so this, this right. cultural, you know, this sort of popular cultural understanding of what we do was so completely contrary into what our normal daily uh, everyday lives were like, you know, sort of sitting in a cubicle sometimes that that too was such a funny dynamic to be able to to play with and i you know and we still do it today you know every time there's some fancy cia movie out there you know we all sort of laugh at it uh, you know like oh, right like that's really how it works imagine yeah, james yeah. bond filing his you know <laughs> expense reports or having to explain why the car got scratched
0: <laughs> last question alex before we get to victor do you think within the confines of good taste that almost anything is open to satire or there or are there some issues that are simply too serious you know to write about from a satirical point of view you know i'm thinking about putin's possible use of tactical nuclear weapons for example is there is there a line there
3: i have a very good friend from college who is now an extremely successful film writer and tv writer and one of the things that he taught me Back when we were working in theater together in college, is there is absolutely nothing that cannot be made fun of. And I do truly believe that. Now, how you make fun of it does make a difference. So there are, of course, ways to come at these things. Like I said, my first book is about the war on terror. That's a terribly serious subject. That is something that has affected, you know, so many lives of people around the world. But I found things in it that were absurd and that needed to be pointed out. This is ridiculous. And so there are ways. I think it's just you have to find the right ways. And that's actually one of the things when I was saying before, you know, don't censor yourself. You sort of have to let yourself go through some of these ways that maybe they're not. You you start down a path and you realize, oh, okay, that's not going to work. That's not the funny way to approach this. But I know that it's in there somewhere, but I have to work through it and find the right angles for how I'm going to do this.
0: Okay, Alex, let's turn to Victor and your third novel, Victor in Trouble. Could you give us a a short, spoiler free synopsis of the book?
3: Sure. So, in this book, uh, Victor Caro arrives in Rome, as you said, for his retirement tour and is expecting, you know, three years of. Pasta-filled, wine drinking, and pure fun, and la dolce vita, <laughs> and a, a you know quick run up to to the retirement finish line. But the world has other plans for Victor, and he finds himself going after a source or recruiting a source to provide information on Russian influence operations. After the Russians have gone after a number of politicians in the West. And he then finds himself having to protect his source from the politicians who have been corrupted by those very same Russian intelligence operations. And he's doing all of this within the context of a very large disinformation campaign going on all around him.
0: Sounds eerily reminiscent of a certain election. Uh,
3: yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> wonder where do I get my inspiration? <laughs>
0: Um, so how does the book fit in with your first two in the Victor Caro series?
3: So it's, it's the third book, but they actually don't have to be read in order. The first one, as I said, is Victor in the Rubble, which is uh, about the agency. It's more about the agency, I think, than the others, and, and about the war on terror, and takes place in West Africa. The second one is called Victor in the Jungle, and uh, looks at the perils and the pitfalls of populism in a South American country with a narco-trafficking dictator. And the third one is, is Victor in Trouble, which takes place in Rome and uh, looks at the Russian influence operations to interfere in Western politics.
0: So without, without giving anything away, given what happens to Victor at the end of the third book, will there be a fourth book in the series?
3: Well, never say never, as they say. <laughs> Uh, but I think Victor has a, deserves a little bit of retirement time. He needs to enjoy a little bit of time, at least. But he, you know, like even James Bond came back, right, from retirement. So who knows?
0: Right. And then what about another series? Another another new character? Is that in the offing?
3: It is. I actually have a fourth book about halfway written with new characters. It's still, uh, you know, it's still a CIA type of a book, and it's still a satire, uh, but all new characters.
0: You know, I guess Victor could come back as an analyst, right? I'm sure Victor would love the review process for a PDB.
3: Oh, I'm sure he'd be able to sit still for all that. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: That'll be a very short book.
2: (laughs) I could help you with that one.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Alex.
4: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: So, Alex, what I would love to do next, if your game, is to mention some of the characters, some of the things from the book, and just get you to react, right? Just say what the first thing that pops into your mind, okay? Okay. So, here we go. Cya employees take long breaks from work to compete in a gingerbread competition.
3: Yeah, that's that's real. <laughs> I know that's real, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, yeah, and and it's on the website now. You know, they it they, is, they, it is. So we can actually out, talk
0: about it. It's not secret. <laughs>
3: exactly. They, they they tweet out. I think you know because it it makes an appearance actually in one of the other books, and people were like, "Is that real?" And I, I wasn't sure what I could say. I mean, the, the books were all cleared by the Publications Review Board, but, but finally, when they started tweeting out the entries for the gingerbread house contest, I was like, okay, now I can really make fun of it.
0: But these, um, I, I guess, people should know these aren't, these aren't, you know, traditional gingerbread houses. These are, these are gingerbread houses that are kind of unique to the CIA. So think of. Think of Bin Laden's abadabad compound, <laughs> and, you know, in
3: gingerbread. Yeah, this is it. People get very <laughs> creative. And uh, I know some people love it. Uh, because, look, it's a, it's a funny, fun, you know, lighthearted thing, uh, you know, when you're in a very serious work environment, you need that kind of release. But I do also know people who were sort of out in the field trying to get responses to cables. <laughs> you know, and the, and the desk officer was like, oh, I got to run out to vote on the gingerbread house.
0: <laughs> okay, here's another one. Victor's boss in Rome, a guy named Wilcox, is arrogant, completely out of touch, and wants to launch military strikes at every turn.
3: Yes, yeah, so Wilcox grew out of 20 years of the war on terror. So he... <laughs> He's a, he's a chief of station who, who has only spent his career so far in war zones, and then finds himself in a European capital where intelligence operations and, and tradecraft is much more complex. You can't just buy people off uh, like you can do in so many other places. And you're dealing with very sophisticated host countries, right, who th- their own services are very sophisticated. And so it's not like a war zone. It's a, it's a completely different way of, uh, of running operations, as you know. And so, yeah, I wanted Wilcox to sort of represent that, that dichotomy.
0: When you should be eating pasta and drinking wine, right, <laughs> um, in meetings, um, he's thinking about conducting military strikes. I've actually seen that before. <laughs> so at one point, here's another one, Wilcox says to Victor, and I and we put this in quotes here, you represent the greatest intelligence service in the history of our country or any other in the history of mankind or any other species.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, that's, you know, that's, uh, there's a little bit of arrogance, right, sometimes in American foreign policy. And I think some of the idolization that we have given to our military and our intelligence services over the years some of it well-deserved, but some of it sometimes goes too far, that we we hold these you know, agencies up on a pedestal, and and we sometimes get a little bit arrogant about our own position in the world.
0: You know, it also sounds a little bit, and I speak from experience here, of senior agency officers visiting CIA stations and giving a talk in what's called an all-hands, right, where where everybody shows up in the hallway and the Senior person's up front and they give a talk and they, they sort of say things like this, right? That you guys are the greatest intelligence service in the history of the country sort of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's meant, <laughs> this is it. I mean, it's meant as motivation, but, you know, it, it, like at one point, like come on. It's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you start, when it's like, you know, a participation medal for everybody. You know, like when, <laughs> yeah. when everybody gets praised all the time, you know, or everybody getting a, an EPA just for showing up on time. It's like, okay, I mean, come on. And it starts to lose its value at one point.
0: I think at one point my side of the agency actually started giving out little awards for, you know, writing like one or two or three PDBs. And every time you wrote one, you got this little you got this little token or something. It reminded me of fifth grade soccer.
3: <laughs> this is it. I mean, these are professionals. They shouldn't need... Uh, yeah, you know, every, a little trophy for, for doing every little bit of their job.
0: Okay, here's another one. The deputy chief of the station is so bland that the other characters don't notice her unless she's holding a highlighter. Where did that come from?
3: <laughs> yeah, they, I, you know, there are some people who just sort of disappear or who become, who become you know, like they, they never leave the building. You know, their, their life is, is the job, and so they never leave the building, and they sort of take the color of the, of the cubicles um yeah, there are just some who don't have quite the same forceful character as others. Maybe she was doing something really important behind the scenes that's just not written about. We're not And really she sure. was
0: using her she was using her highlighter.
3: <laughs> exactly. Well, this she had so she had a purpose, right? She had something yeah. she had to be doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, on the analytics side of the agency, highlighters are pretty important.
3: <laughs> this is true. This is true. So maybe, maybe she was just on the wrong side of the house.
0: Maybe she, maybe she was misplaced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another one. I love these. So Patrick, who's a counterterrorism analyst, is conflicted when the president declares an end, and I'm going to quote this again, an end to the total war on terror.
3: Yes, he is conflicted because what the, it means either he totally succeeded, or, but he maybe succeeded himself out of a job, or... He recognizes that, in fact, they've not succeeded at all. But the, the top policymakers declaring the war on terror over. So what is he supposed to do with his free time now?
0: There is this weird irony, right, that bad things happening in the world are good if you're in the intelligence business, right? You're more in demand. It's this, it's this weird irony.
3: This is true. This is true. But in Patrick's case, the irony here is that, in fact, the war continues, <laughs> yes. It's just that he's now been told he shouldn't pursue it in any particular way.
0: You know, I shouldn't tell the story, but I was in the men's room once, and this was right during a phase of the uh, actual peace in the peace process between the Israelis and Palestinians, and there were some analysts in there who were lamenting the peace <laughs> process <laughs> because it would put their job at risk. <laughs>
3: This is it, and and when you know when you've put so much time, so many years into something, there's a little bit of a of a letdown, actually, right afterwards. Um yeah. I, I mean, I I know for sure, you know, after after uh, the Bin Laden raid, there actually also was a lot of you know, there was the super excited at first, like okay, okay, we finally succeeded, and then there was sort of the the drop after the high. You know, <laughs> what like, do we oh, do uh, now? Well, well, now what? We've we've all just put so much effort and time and sacrifice into doing this right because of course it's not just that group that we see you know in the movies that did it right and this this was built on years and years of of people running these operations and getting information and analyzing and putting all of this together right so all of these people putting in all this effort now it's okay now it's done So okay now what (laughs) take a week off
0: (laughs) We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
4: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: Oh. <sighs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of morning, Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
3: Talk about starting the morning
2: right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Oh. mm Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
0: So, Alex, let's continue with some stuff from the book. So the next one on my list here is that the president requires Dickie the doll to be (laughs) present at all of his intelligence briefings. What's that all about?
3: Yeah, so... The new president uh, that is brought in, that is elected in in Victor in trouble. The new president was quite likely elected with help from Russia, and he's not the most intellectual, let's say. And uh, you know, but the analysts, of course, have a have a responsibility to to brief him every day, but they have trouble getting his attention, and they have trouble getting him to understand things. So. There's a sort of a running theme in the book of the analysts uh, looking for ways to get his attention and to, to pass on to him this information that he, as President of the United States, needs to know. And what they eventually land on is Dickie the doll, who attends all of the briefings, and he walks across a very large map. So he starts at the White House, and then if they're discussing Afghanistan that day, Dickie the dog goes to Afghanistan and tells a little story as he's going, and then he explains whatever it is the president needs to know in a high-pitched Elmo voice, I believe is how I described it, (laughs) and explains everything to the president in that way.
0: So when I was briefing President Bush, he required that his two dogs, Barney and Spot, be in the room for every briefing. But they mostly just laid down and slept. (laughs) They were bored? You couldn't find a way? (laughs) They were bored. I bored them.
3: (laughs) You needed a a dog translator. Because maybe they could have helped.
0: You know, what was really tough was when George Tennant and I, who was the director at the time, walked into the Oval Office and Spot was asleep on the place on the sofa where George was supposed to sit. And what do you do, right? Do you actually move the president's dog or not? It's a tough question.
3: And so what did he do?
0: You know, he waited. He just stood there and he (laughs) waited for the president to tell Spot to move. (laughs) It's interesting to watch your boss in front of the president, right?
3: I'm sure. I'm sure. But see, like those little details, right? Those are very funny, absurd details. That's great satire right there.
0: And of course, I went back to the agency and told everybody. (laughs) Told everyone, (laughs) and then then it spread like wildfire, right? (laughs) Which is something else about the agency, right? Is funny stories spread like crazy? Yes. because you can't talk about you know some some real serious stuff. You know, that might be compartmented, but you can share sure gossip.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all sort of understand why that is so funny because some other people might be like, oh, he's talking about being in the Oval Office again. But no, like for for 2 b <laughs> briefers, that's like, that's hilarious. That happened to me last week.
0: <laughs> okay, last one. Victor is distracted because he wants a blue ball, an exercise ball, to sit on like his wife who works for the FBI but once he gets the ball, he has to wear a helmet because of safety concerns.
3: Yeah, that grew out of a lot of the. Um, you know, look, there, there, they, there are a lot of bureaucratic regulations, right? So, like, to get a desk, the desk has to be at your grade level. You know, you, you can't have a GS fifteen desk if you're a GS twelve. You know, so, and and they do have a lot of these. Um, Weird sort of safety regulations. Yeah, you know, one one minor mishap in some faraway station in the random corner of the world, and then there's this blanket worldwide regulation to make sure that one teeny tiny thing that could only have happened in that particular station doesn't happen anywhere else. And it just becomes this huge blanket generic regulation.
0: Yeah, no, it is absolutely true that a lot of regulations exist because, you know, one bad thing happened somewhere (laughs) is absolutely true. (laughs) This is funny. Okay, Alex, that's fantastic. One more issue to raise. While some might think a job at CIA is pretty cool, I'd argue that your new status as a yacht watcher is pretty cool too. Can you tell us about your new online persona?
3: Sure. So growing actually out of Victor in Trouble. So one of the characters, which you didn't ask me about, so I'll tell about him, there is an oligarch in Victor in Trouble. And because the oligarchs, of course, played uh, an integral role in Putin's destabilization activities. So one of the characters in the book is an oligarch. And if you're going to have an oligarch, you have to have a yacht. So I had actually started (laughs) doing, I had been doing a lot of research on oligarch yachts before this war ever started in Ukraine, and I happen to live in Barcelona, so a lot of those yachts, the Russian ones, actually. Not, I mean, there are lots of big yachts down here in the port in Barcelona, but that also the Russians loved it here. So uh, we had Russian oligarch yachts here all the time. So I got to know them, and uh, I got to know the boats, not the oligarchs. I never got invited on, but. Um, that's
0: probably a good thing. I know,
3: I know. But I still am hoping one of these detained yachts that I can get on one day with like a, a Ukrainian flag and just get a photograph of myself on the back. Well, maybe of
0: a you can get one yacht. pretty cheap too, right?
3: Yeah, see? Yeah, well, that's it. They may all be on sale pretty soon. So, and I can't imagine there's a huge market for a $700 million yacht. But so that's it. I had become quite familiar with these yachts and I had occasionally on Twitter given tours of the port in Barcelona taking pictures of some of the boats and accompanying it almost always with some kind of snarky comment and uh, and you know, people thought it was funny and whatever. And then before just even before the war began, I started highlighting the the Russian yachts that were here in Barcelona and uh, because I knew sanctions were coming. I knew that I assessed for myself that the war was going to start. It was never in doubt for me that Putin was going to invade. And my understanding then was that the next step would be sanctions on the oligarchs. And that then would include their assets like their yachts. So I started highlighting the different yachts that were here in Barcelona. And it got a lot of traction. And then one day I was down at the port. And by chance, one of Roman Abramovich's several yachts called Solaris was out running sea trials. It had been in one of the the shipyards here undergoing refit or you know some kind of repair work or whatever and was doing sea trials and I started tweeting about it and saying you know are are we watching it prepare to flee sanctions and in fact that's exactly what ended up happening the boat left here on a Tuesday afternoon I think and then sanctions came down on Abramovich something like 36 hours later so I had this background because of Victor in Trouble and other work that I had done I, I had this background in the oligarchs and the yachts and that's it. It kind of took off. And so suddenly I became the Yacht Watcher and uh, everybody started asking me about yachts.
0: That's really cool. You know, you mentioned Abramovich has multiple yachts. How many yachts does a person need?
3: Well, apparently at least six. <laughs> and he, he sold one. There's one that, that changed to ownership hands the day of the invasion. Of course, it's to somebody else who, you know, is like listed on the Chelsea FC group as well. So it's somebody very close to him. He still has access to it probably. But that's the thing. I mean, there, there are a number of yachts that we know belong to the oligarchs. So we've been able to track those, but they're also, they're discovering like there are yachts being built or other yachts that we just didn't even know belong to them. And so you don't know to look for them, right? If you don't know that they exist, you don't know to look for them. So this, this story is far from done because I also think that the yachts have been used... To launder money and to, and to move money into strategic spending for, for Putin. So I think there's still a lot more to uncover here.
0: And these aren't what I think most people think of as yachts, right? I mean, these are huge ships. These aren't your typical yacht.
3: Right. I mean, we're talking 140, 150 meters, you know, so bigger than an American football field.
0: Yeah. You know, like yeah. a football really? field and a half. Really amazing, yeah really amazing. and
3: and extremely high tech they, they have uh, you know personalized submarines, anti-missile defense systems, bulletproof glass, uh, the swimming pool that turns into a disco because how can you live without that uh, <laughs> retractable helicopter hangers because you know once the helicopter lands, it's just so unsightly, you know you needs to you don't want your guests to see that
0: <laughs> Alex, you are terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. The book is Victor in Trouble. The author is Alex Finley. Go to Amazon, buy all three books. Alex, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. That was Alex Finley. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.